At least three people are dead and dozens more hurt after a tornado hit the northern Texas panhandle city of Perryton. It's Friday, June 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a look at the current relationship between the U.S. and China. Also this hour, as the Supreme Court weighs a Harvard case on the future of affirmative action, a look at California's public college system. It banned affirmative action in 1996, and the effect was immediate. Black, Hispanic, and Native American students on average go to slightly less selective schools. White and Asian students, meanwhile, go to slightly more selective schools. And the effort in Maine to get away from oil heat to fight climate change and save money. It's really expensive, and we have a long winter, and you can imagine that all of that money for all of that fuel is a huge energy burden on a lot of people. Mostly sunny in the 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A federal grand jury has indicted Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira on six counts. He's accused of leaking secret Pentagon documents online for months. Teixeira is jailed in Massachusetts. His lawyers say he has no criminal history and should be released on bond. Prosecutors disagree. They say he could flee to another country. A U.S. nuclear-powered, rather-powered submarine has docked in South Korea. This comes a day after North Korea test-fired two ballistic missiles. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports the U.S. is sending more military hardware to Asia to reassure its allies and deter its adversaries. The USS Michigan arrived in the port of Busan Friday, the first U.S. nuclear-powered guided missile sub to visit in six years. South Korea's defense ministry said the U.S. and South Korean navies will conduct joint drills during the visit. The vessel is capable of carrying over 150 Tomahawk cruise missiles. It's not clear if it is carrying any on this trip. Washington formalized its commitment to temporarily deploy such weapons at a bilateral summit in Washington in April. The sub's visit also follows North Korea's failed attempt last month to launch its first military reconnaissance satellite. South Korea said Friday it had salvaged what appears to be the rocket's second stage from the sea. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is warning of disaster unless world governments work very hard to reduce global warming. Current policies are taking the world to a 2.8 degree temperature rise by the end of the century. That spells catastrophe, yet the collective response remains pitiful. The U.N. chief says a lower rise in global temperatures is still possible if governments speed up their climate plans. He also told the fossil fuel industry it must transform away from a product that's not compatible with human survival. The CEO of social media site Reddit is defending a new plan to charge third parties for access to the company's data. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, the move prompted a two-day boycott on the popular message board with thousands of discussion forums going dark in protest. Reddit's chief executive Steve Huffman tells NPR, quote, It's time we grow up and behave like an adult company. Huffman is referring to his plan to start charging third-party developers for access to Reddit data, which has long been free. We've been subsidizing other businesses for free for a long time. We're stopping that. That is not a negotiable point. You know, it's just we are simply in an unsustainable position, and so we need to get into a sustainable situation. Later this year, Reddit is expected to list its shares on public stock markets. Huffman says the new fees are not a message to investors, but rather a pushback against AI companies that have been scraping conversations on Reddit to teach language bots how to communicate. Bobby Allen, NPR News. 
And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The city of Somerville is close to establishing the first clinic in the state to prevent overdoses and deaths by monitoring drug use. As WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports, the city has allocated most of the money it needs for the project. Next week, Mayor Katiana Ballantyne will ask the city council for the final funds needed to purchase a mobile clinic. Her proposed budget includes $10,000 for consultants, and she's considering a range of sources for operating funds. Ballantyne says progress may seem slow, but the stakes are high. This is a project that can and will save lives, and we want to make sure we have the details right from the very first day of operation. Clinic staff could face arrest, but federal agents have not interfered with two similar clinics in New York. Governor Maura Healy has said she's open to letting communities offer these centers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The Bristol County DA says an Easton police officer was justified when he shot and killed a woman at her home. The shooting happened back in February during a wellness check. The DA's report says the 56-year-old woman was armed with a BB gun when she charged at the officer. It concludes the officer is protected by use of force policies and self-defense laws. Teachers in Worcester are officially getting pay raises and benefit upgrades. The city's school committee unanimously ratified a new contract yesterday. Teachers overwhelmingly approved the deal last month. The Telegram and Gazette reports the new contract will run through August 2026. The annual Donna Summer Disco Party returns to City Hall Plaza in Boston tonight. Summer was a music legend who was born in Dorchester and raised in Mission Hill. John Borders is the city's director of tourism, sports, and entertainment. He says this is a chance to pay tribute to a Bostonian who was often overlooked in her own time. If we, as the city of Boston, can continue to recognize and champion our own, then it will continue to inspire that next generation of Bostonians to go out into the world and be great. The event includes music and roller skating. It begins at 5. Right now it's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com go. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. The Red Sox and Yankees open a three-game series tonight at Fenway Park. And in your forecast, mostly sunny today. It'll be in the lower 80s, cloudy with scattered showers overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Showers and thunderstorms tomorrow, mid-60s. Mostly cloudy with another chance for showers on Sunday in the 60s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paramount Network, presenting 1883, a Yellowstone origin story, a summer-long event. 1883 full-series network premiere starting Sunday at 8 on Paramount Network. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken is traveling to Beijing this weekend. He'll be the first cabinet official to visit China since President Biden took office. The hope is that this trip will allay global concerns that a deteriorating relationship between the two superpowers could erupt in conflict. Representative Andy Kim is a member of the new bipartisan House Committee on China, whose chair has called the U.S.-China rivalry an existential struggle. The New Jersey Democrat told me he's hoping for a more nuanced. Approach. We can't be thinking about this as an existential threat or a new cold war. You know, if something is an existential threat, how can you have conversation or dialogue with that entity or that person? How can you have diplomacy? I, I just find that the framing of existential threat is designed to try to exclude engagement and diplomacy,、mm. and that's a real problem. So this visit is happening really at an all-time low. With the relationship between the U.S. and China, and the, and the previous visit was canceled over the spy balloon that flew over the U.S. What do you hope to see come out of this visit? The first point is to set up that kind of regular engagement.、Mm -hmm. You know, there needs to be a time when we're just having a regularized communication between, again, the two most powerful countries in the world. And what I hope we can get out of this. Is reestablishing some type of military to military channel at least. I've seen way too many circumstances in my time in national security where just a, an incident or an accident or a misunderstanding can completely flare up and get out of control. So right now, one of the big issues that is a cloud over the U.S.-China relationship is Taiwan, and already before this visit. Is even happening. There was a call where、uh, China's foreign minister said to Secretary of State Blinken, "Don't touch our core concerns like Taiwan, and stay out of our domestic business, human rights issues, this type of thing." What should be done, especially around Taiwan? First and foremost, you know, we need to be clear that what we're trying to do is be able to protect the status quo. There are a lot of misconceptions there and suspicions there that are trying to make it seem like we're actually trying to. Move that status quo ourselves, and that is absolutely not the case. And that's why diplomacy matters. You want a diplomacy first sort of approach. I want、China. a comprehensive approach. There is space, and an important space for military deterrence、mm -hmm. and security, no doubt. But there, it has to be paired, and it has to be done strategically. You know, I think the biggest problem that I feel like I've seen on Capitol Hill in particular is our policy to China is so reactionary. We're just responding to the latest headlines. It's、mm. a spy balloon yesterday. It's TikTok today, and those are important issues. But our policy shouldn't just be that short-sighted. You know, we need to be thinking multiple years out the road of just what do we want to accomplish in the Indo-Pacific. A lot of the time, when you hear about the U.S.-China relationship, it's a lot about China's aggression and rising tensions between the U.S. and China. But how much of that soured relationship is due to the what you view as the short-sightedness of the U.S. policy towards China? One thing that we need to make sure we're saying is that you know, there are a lot of dangerous actions that the Chinese、mm -hmm. Communist Party has done, and so you know that, I think that's the important part is we can't look at diplomacy and deterrence as mutually exclusive. Do you think that it is in Beijing's interest to attack Taiwan? I think it's、uh, certainly their goal in terms of reunification, and that's something that they've been saying for decades. 
But I, I think they also recognize how complicated, how difficult this is. I mean, their military has never been tested in generations. I think they recognize how challenging it would be, um, how devastating it would be to the global economy. I don't want us to think that this is inevitable. And I, I do get concerned by some of the rhetoric that makes it sound like it's imminent. You know, we should be vigilant. Do you think it's a mistake for so much of the public rhetoric out of the U.S. to be focused on Taiwan? It's certainly a, a concern, but I don't want people to think that the entirety of our China policy and Indo-Pacific policy is a Taiwan policy. There's so many other issues. I mean, the U.S. and China, our economies are unbelievably intertwined. Representative Andy Kim, Democrat from New Jersey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. We turn now to the deadly mystery of who's lacing xylazine, a dangerous horse tranquilizer, into America's street drug supply. The chemical, often mixed with fentanyl, is turning up all over the country, devastating people with addiction. Jessica lives in Newcastle, Delaware. It just eats your skin away and you just have a, a hole and then it leaves a scar. I think as experts say, it's unclear how and why xylazine is spreading so fast. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann found this lack of information is part of a wider problem. Brian, how can it be that public health officials and law enforcement don't seem to know where xylazine is coming from? Yeah, this really is remarkable, A, and it points to one of the dilemmas of America's addiction overdose epidemic. Everyone agrees that there's a public health crisis underway, 110,000 deaths last year. But from the start, the U.S. hasn't done the most basic thing you during an epidemic, which is gather good data, you know, fast, accurate information. Intel on what drugs are on the streets when it's gathered at all tends to be siloed in law enforcement agencies and disseminated really slowly. I spoke about this with Navarun Desgupta, who runs a lab at the University of North Carolina that samples street drugs collected all over the U.S. We only find out about what's in the street drug supply when it's too late, when people are either dead or arrested. And experts say this lack of information slowed the public health response when fentanyl began to spread. Now xylazine is spreading fast and many communities still aren't even testing for the drug. Why don't government agencies track street drugs and, and overdoses more accurately? Yeah, the experts I've spoken to say this is a legacy of decades of public policy that leaned more toward the drug war, you know, police and law enforcement, rather than public health. Levi Wardell is in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction himself, and he works now as a funeral home director in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And in that role, a he helps families who've lost loved ones to drugs. And he says it's just crazy that officials don't track dangerous drugs and overdoses the way we track other public health threats. Do you remember when COVID started happening on the news? You saw the map and you saw where a place was getting red, where hot spots were. Why would that not be available for this? And the Biden administration has tried to improve drug data collection, but government officials acknowledge the system still slow and, and primitive. Big national solutions like monitoring wastewater for illicit drugs or requiring law enforcement agencies to report new substances that they're detecting. Those ideas just haven't gained traction. So many people are dying. How are people on the front lines dealing with this lack of information? Yeah, people are trying to get creative. Cities in some states are improving their local tracking and their information sharing systems. And nonprofit groups are doing the best they can. I spoke about this with Sam Rivera, who's with On Point. It's a group that runs a harm reduction clinic in New York City. The way, you know, we have national harm reduction calls once a month or so, and we're always checking in with each other. What's there? What are you finding here? What are you finding there? 
And people I talk to say this kind of communication is helping, but it's a far cry from the kind of real-time national public health data the experts say is needed. If better information were available, how would it make a difference? Yeah, experts I talk to a say that it would be a game changer. First, most basically, you could just warn the public when there are new drug dangers on the streets. Real-time data about overdose clusters could help focus first responder, EMT, and harm reduction staffing. And then there's one more thing. You know, public health officials a say they expect new synthetic drugs, maybe even more deadly, to keep turning up on the streets. And without any kind of early warning system, the country is likely to get caught off guard again, as we were before with fentanyl and xylazine. That's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Brian, thanks. Thank you. For more than a week now, Mexico has been sizzling with daily highs in some places reaching 113 degrees. NPR's Ader Peralta sends us this postcard from Mexico City, where temperatures have been hovering in the 90s. This is not a city made for heat. We're at 7,349 feet above sea level. So the sun is hot, but the shade and the nights are almost always cool. But these last few weeks, Mexico City has turned into a furnace. And you can't really find respite. There are few air-conditioned places. So people here head to the water fountains. (laughs) Julio Cesar Mendez had just dunked his head into the water. Now imagine the subway, he says. I've had sweat come out of places I never imagined. And sleep. We sleep how God brought us into the world. Sometimes it's easy to forget we're in the tropics here, but this week it's felt like Faulkner's Mississippi, a dizzying, delirious experience. A lady I spoke to was afraid she would get malaria, even though it doesn't exist here. It made me think that not far from this park, the ancient Aztecs used to sacrifice children. So Tlatloc, the god of rain, would take mercy and cover the sun with rain cloud. Thankfully, these days Mexicans just turn to aguas frescas, refreshing fruit juices. Maria Elena Cuatla Sacagua has been selling them here for 50 years, and she doesn't mind the heat. When it's cloudy, she says, sales slump. But when it's hot, business is also hot. Plus, she says, she worked the fields when she was young, and that was hard. All the complainers, she says, are just being big babies. And maybe the universe heard her, because suddenly a lazy summer day turns into a chance to dance. The heat be damned. Ada Palta, NPR News, Mexico City. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, President Biden has announced that a former Democratic National Committee official will serve as communications director for his re-election campaign. It's one sign that Biden may lean heavily on support from the DNC heading into 2024. It's 719. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And JBS Home Inspections with condo common area inspections as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com. You know what I love about Posting Morning Edition? I get to introduce the work of our incredible reporters or interview people living through their most joyous moments and sometimes their most difficult days. It helps me and you, our listeners, understand the world we live in. But it also costs money. So donate your car towards supporting the work. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org slash cars. A reminder that this Monday is the Juneteenth holiday. It celebrates the emancipation of enslaved black Americans. Government offices and the post office will be closed Monday, but the T will run all of its services on a regular weekday schedule. Partly sunny and a high near 82 today. There's a chance of scattered showers this evening and overnight. Temperatures will fall to a low around 62. Tomorrow, cloudy and a high of 68 with showers and thunderstorms likely. The rain could be heavy at times. More showers on Sunday with a high of 68 again. It's 68 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from STARS, with a new season of Outlander. In order to protect what they've built, Jamie and Claire have to navigate the perils of the Revolutionary War. Watch Outlander now on STARS and the STARS app. From Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. A remote vacation rental, a group of friends, a weekend getaway, a murderous psychopath. Pick a card. Okay, calm down, I just did. Yeah, you better watch how you talking to my lady, okay? Okay. What you got? You are a black character in a horror movie. Prove that you can stay alive. Name one black character that survived a horror movie. You must answer correctly, or you die. Oh, so this is just an aggressively themed trivia game. Imagine a version where all the main characters are black people and it's Juneteenth weekend. Director Tim Story brings us The Blackening, a horror comedy built on the fact that until now that's never really been done before. And Tim's story is with us now to tell us more about it. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Can you just talk a little bit about like how the whole idea got started? Yeah, no, kind of the uh, how it originated. Dwayne Perkins by himself created this six or seven minute short. And Tracy, Tracy Oliver saw this, this short. Um, a friend of hers called and said, you got to check out this short. It's so much like your kind of humor. She watched it and said she just laughed. Um, and she literally tracked Dwayne down and said, I think this can be a movie. And Dwayne kind of just said, yes, I'll do it. And so they came up with kind of an idea. Then I was approached. I was only supposed to be a producer. I read it. I laughed out loud. And I kind of raised my hand and said, what if I 
would direct it. And uh, everybody said, okay, and, and off we went. I read where you told an interviewer that one reason you wanted to direct the film was the sense that you wanted to kind of protect Tracy Oliver and Dwayne Perkins' script from the, what some people seem to feel is like the inevitable watering down that comes when projects are developed by Black people, but then get to the studio setting and some of the sort of the edges is, is taken off. Is that right? I read it and the first thing was, oh my God, this is amazing. I get it. I got to do this. And then the second part was, the reason why I want to do it is to protect the voice, to protect us not having to um, second guess ourselves. So much of this art is on instinct and just going for it. And sometimes you don't have an amazing reason for it. It just feels good or it just, it's true, it's authentic. And so I wanted to just be sure this project had that. And because I have to sometimes censor those cultural references so often in my work, just because not everybody gets it, this film felt like a kind of a therapeutic thing for me. And I wanted to be sure mm. it did not ever question itself. Hmm. That's so interesting to hear you say that because you obviously you've had a very distinguished career in Hollywood. I mean, you've been playing with different genres your whole career. I'm talking about Shaft. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just always <laughs> wanted to say that. Um, and you took on a genre classic and then Ride Along, the Odd Couple buddy movie, Think Like a Man, which is kind of a screwball romantic comedy. So it's interesting to hear you say that this project was kind of therapeutic for you because a lot of your movies have been kind of in, you know, in the black space. But do you think that this represents a kind of a moment in time for you? Or do you think it represents a moment in Hollywood where people can finally start saying what they really want to say? Gosh, I, I want to say it's a little bit of both. I'd like to put a lot on Hollywood and being able to, I'd love to think that is the case. Um, but I do believe myself, as well as many other filmmakers out there, have to constantly fight for what's um, kind of true. Because you do come up against... Well, I don't understand that. And sometimes you have to fight for, well, put it in front of the audience. And so often with my work, I've made executives watch it with 100 people for who the movie was made for. Hmm. And the ones that I've had great experiences with see that and go, ah, I get it. Okay, but here's something sticky I want to ask you about, though, in, in mm. comedy, okay? It seems really throughout the movies is that Blackness has been used as a trope. I mean, you're in, in this film, you're interrogating the idea of the kind of the trope of like the black friend. In fact, lots of tropes, right? The black friend, the black gay friend. Sure, yeah. And you're kind of flipping a lot of those on their heads. And so it's always been true, like blackness has been used as a trope. I mean, from like the earliest days, like to, to exemplify, you know, stupidity or vulgarity or, you know, all the things, right? You know, what about the tropes that center people of color that are made by people of color? To be fair, aren't there some of these tropes that that people of color kind of amplify on themselves. Sure, sure. You know, what, what's that about? And what do you think about that? And did you think about that in the course of making this film? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, as I try to bring these characters to the screen, I'm always asking those questions because I'm conscious of what society, quote unquote, this world has seen of, of Black characters. If I am going to 
give you something that most consider stereotypical, I try to give them the reasoning for it. Mm. Most of the time when we have these stereotypical characters, they just show up and they're that way. And what I love in the work that I've been able to do is give you more of the information. Sure, if it feels stereotypical, okay, but listen closer or, or look closer or me and the actor are going to give you a reason why, oh, you thought mm. it was because of this. But here's why that character is this way. I don't shy away from any character that might seem stereotypical because they're going to be more than that. Hopefully I answered the question. It's a passionate thing I've had to deal with uh, pretty much all my career and continue to. So let's loop back to where we started. You said that this in some ways was kind of healing for you, which is interesting to hear after all the success you've had with so many different types of films. And I'm just wondering, can you say a little bit more about that? When I say therapeutic, this was therapeutic in the sense that I get back to this thing of instinct where art doesn't have breaks. There's something amazing when you're in a room and you have an idea and you can say it and everybody, first of all, understands where it's coming from. You don't have to explain somebody why it's important. That's a space that just brings with it humor and just kind of magic. And that's what I think the blackening is. It's if you have a good time laughing, it's that we're, if you know the culture, you're going to be starting from where we are. And now we're taking it a little bit further. In my opinion, when it comes to representing black culture, that's where the magic happens. Tim Story, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. This is awesome. The Blackening opens in theaters today, just in time for Juneteenth weekend. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, we learn about efforts to wean homeowners in Maine off of oil heat to fight climate change and save money. It's 7.29. The WBWAR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBWAR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Refuge Point, finding lasting solutions for refugees so they can thrive. This World Refugee Day, learn how you can help at refugepoint.org slash WBUR. And Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. U.S. officials are again expressing concern about human trafficking of Ukrainians because the war with Russia is leaving millions of people displaced both inside and outside the combat zone. U.S. Ambassador-at-Large to Monitor and Combat Human Trafficking, Cindy Dyer. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine forced more than 8 million people to flee Ukraine and displaced 1.5 million more within its borders as of May 2023. 
And she says the U.S. is particularly concerned about children being trafficked. Greece's Coast Guard says it's wrapping up the search for survivors after a fishing boat packed with migrants sank on Wednesday. Officials says, say no one's been located since then. At least 78 people died. 104 were rescued. Associated Press journalist Derek Alipoudis is in Athens after returning from the port city of Kalamata, where many of the survivors were taken. The crackdown on migration is causing smugglers to take more risks, essentially, so that they take um, long journeys on unseaworthy boats, as is in this case. It was traveling from Libya to Italy, which is a long journey, three days, and two-thirds of the way through its journey as it passed through Greece, it capsized, mainly because it was an unseaworthy boat. Derek Adipoulos reporting. The U.N. estimates the trawler may have had more than 700 people on board. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There are new charges against the 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret documents. A federal grand jury yesterday indicted Jack Teixeira on six counts of taking and transmitting classified information. Prosecutors say he had access to those documents through his job at Joint Base Cape Cod. He has not yet entered a plea to the charges. The state Supreme Judicial Court has ruled that a lawyer's racism is grounds for a new trial for a man convicted of sex trafficking charges. And now Massachusetts's public defender agency says it's ready to assign attorneys to other cases involving the same lawyer. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The Committee for Public Counsel Services says it notified more than 2,500 of late attorney Richard Doyle's clients, and 69 cases are being reviewed by independent attorneys. Also, there are three active cases requesting new trials. Doyle died two years ago. The SJC ruled yesterday that Doyle's racist social media posts were grounds to grant a new trial to Anthony Dew, who was convicted of sex trafficking in 2016. Coincidentally, Dew was paroled from prison yesterday. The Suffolk County DA's office says it's reviewing whether it will seek a new trial. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The Sumner Tunnel will remain open for the entire holiday weekend. The road between East Boston and downtown has been closed most weekends for a reconstruction project. A reminder that the tunnel will be shut down entirely beginning on July 5th. It's expected to remain closed until the end of August. The T's Blue Line will be free during that period. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Tonight at Fenway, it's the Red Sox against the Yankees. Boston won two out of three games last weekend in New York. In your forecast, a mix of sun and clouds today with a high in the low 80s. This evening, there's a chance of scattered showers. It'll be in the low 60s. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely and much cooler with highs only in the upper 60s. More showers likely on Sunday and it'll be in the upper 60s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from listeners like you, 
who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's been almost two months since President Biden launched his re-election campaign. This weekend in Philadelphia, he'll attend his first political rally of the 2024 race. Now, while it may seem like a slow start, there's uh, been a lot going on behind the scenes at the Democratic National Committee. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith reports on how it all fits into Biden's strategy. Past a maze of low-walled cubicles at DNC headquarters in Washington, there's a sparsely decorated corner office overlooking train tracks. And that is where Biden's campaign manager, Julie Chavez-Rodriguez, is working these days. Which is my temporary office until we get our headquarters straight. The campaign hasn't yet announced where it will be based, though Wilmington, Delaware, is the leading contender. For now, the party and the campaign are nearly indistinguishable. In her first broadcast interview since being named campaign manager, Chavez Rodriguez says starting out here makes a lot of sense. I'm very excited that I'm not having to function like a full startup operation, but instead really do have the resources and the infrastructure and the people power to connect with voters as we need to. This is a big shift from the recent past, when the DNC was a mess. Moa Lathy was the party's communications director from 2013 to 2015. The DNC, when I got there, had essentially been gutted. There was not even a field director, let alone a robust field organization. It was $27 million in debt. The research shop had been decimated. Sam Cornell, the current executive director of the DNC, tells a strikingly similar story. When I walked into the DNC in 2017, we had a fundraising team of three people, none of whom had any experience actually raising money. We were less than 100 staff. The word I like to use is just atrophy. There are now approximately 300 people on the DNC staff. Cornell says Biden directed the party to focus on building a lasting infrastructure to get Democrats elected. You know, I like to equate it to a race car. I'm not here to tell you that the race car is already built and it's out running laps on the track. I am here to tell you that the chassis is in incredible shape. And that is what the Biden-Harris campaign is building on top of. The DNC flexed its new muscle this spring in the state Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, investing hundreds of thousands of dollars and a lot of effort. It worked, says state party chairman Ben Wickler. They organized volunteers from across the country to make phone calls into Wisconsin Democrats and remind them to get out and cast a ballot in early April. That's a, a level of support that makes a gigantic difference that has not always been there by any means. Wickler points to 2012 when Democrats in the state tried to recall the Republican governor, Scott Walker, and the National Party didn't show up. It was just not a major focus for the national committee, not a major focus for the presidential race. And people in Wisconsin worked so hard, but they wound up being flooded by dark money from the Koch network and big right-wing groups. This emphasis on organizing and having a robust party apparatus in place is exactly what Republicans did in 2016. Chris Carr was the RNC's political director. From the outside, he says he can't tell whether the DNC and Biden campaign are just talking a big game. It's hard to make an honest assessment. However, there are other factors that I would be worried about if I was at the DNC as their political director or the campaign manager for President Joe Biden. He says public polls continue to flash with big red warning signs, Democratic voters saying they wish they had another option. While the Democratic establishment and the party are very much behind Biden, 
many Democratic voters are still uneasy. Tamara Keith, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule soon on affirmative action in college admissions. If the policy is struck down nationwide, California offers some clues about how that might affect students and their future earnings. California banned affirmative action in public universities back in 1996. Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explains. Zach Bleemer is an economist at Yale who studies college admissions. And for him, California's ban on affirmative action in public universities offered up a gold mine for research. So he looked at a whole bunch of anonymized data about two groups of students, those who applied to college before the ban and those who applied after. And he came away with three main findings. First, he found the immediate effect of ending affirmative action was a huge drop in the number of underrepresented minority students attending the most selective public universities. Affirmative action ends and Black, Hispanic, and Native American students on average go to slightly less selective schools. White and Asian students, meanwhile, on average get to go to slightly more selective schools, taking the slots of these Black and Hispanic students who had lost access to those places. His second finding looked at the long-run implications of all this shifting around. If you follow these students forward into the labor market, the typical student who, because of the end of affirmative action, had a little bit less access to more selective universities, ended up earning about 5% less than they would have earned if they'd had access to more selective universities through race-based affirmative action. This did not happen to the white and Asian students that he was following who got rejected from that top super selective tier of colleges. In most cases, he says the white and Asian students experienced no decline or, or maybe just a very slight decline in their future earnings. And Zach thinks this may be because those white and Asian students generally came from backgrounds where they could get into and afford a private university education. And it may also be that the black and Hispanic students, on average, came from less privileged backgrounds. And they just had more to gain from the education and the networks that were available to them at these schools. This clearly isn't true for every single student. There are many black and Hispanic students who come from high income backgrounds that are very networked. There are many low-income white and Asian students who don't have that network. What I'm saying is just on average, Black and Hispanic students who gained access through affirmative action were driving substantially above average gains compared to the students who replaced them. They got more bang for their buck. Exactly. I think the best that I can say is forgetting questions of equity. If your goal is just to maximize economic efficiency, just to identify an admissions policy that will spur economic growth, identify students who will be able to best take advantage of university resources, earn the highest wages, pay back the most in tax dollars, and otherwise succeed using a university's resources. That's what affirmative action did. At least before the state banned it. Now, if affirmative action gets banned nationally, Zach predicts the country is going to see a version of what happened in California, an immediate drop in enrollment for underrepresented minority students at highly selective schools, and in the longer run, he predicts that the sizable income gap that currently exists between white and Asian college graduates and black, Hispanic, and Native American grads will grow. Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness.
This is NPR News. It's a Friday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, we have the first interview with Reddit CEO Steve Huffman since thousands of users started protesting his company's new policy to start charging for use of its data. Low 80s and partly sunny today, low 60s tonight, and there's a good chance of scattered showers. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely in the upper 60s. Upper 60s on Sunday, too, with more showers likely. It's 69 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Russell's Garden Center, a shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A gardening tradition for 147 years. Route 20, Wayland. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Cambridge-based Beth Israel Leahy Health is getting the green light to acquire New Hampshire-based Exeter Health. New Hampshire's Attorney General signed off on the agreement this week. The deal is said to be worth $375 million. It still needs final approval from the Merrimack County Superior Court. Boston-based Liberty Mutual is selling its largest overseas operation. The insurance giant says it reached an agreement to sell Liberty Seguros to a company based in France. The deal is worth $2.5 billion. Fans of the hit show Friends will soon have a new favorite spot to grab coffee in Boston. Central Perk Coffee will open a permanent location on Newbury Street later this year. The shop is modeled after the cafe of the same name where the show's characters often hung out. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and the Elliott Hotel, nestled in the heart of Boston's Back Bay. For business or summer fun, the suites at the Elliott are designed to create memorable experiences. ElliottHotel.com. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It may be June, but New Englanders are already making their heating fuel plans for next season after an expensive winter. In Massachusetts, one quarter of that heat comes from pricey, carbon-intensive oil. In Maine, there's an even bigger reliance on oil, and transitioning away from the fuel there is proving to be challenging, even as it's critical for the state's climate goals. Annie Ropeek reports. Bob Moody lives in a ramshackle split level in the tiny northern Maine town of Castle Hill, not far from the Canadian border. He built this house in the 1980s. The materials were salvaged from a nearby former Air Force base. And I'm pretty sure that door's not even very efficient. That door's from a 1957 house. (laughs) Moody was showing around a team of energy auditors from his county's community action agency in late March. That's his oil furnace running in the background. Moody is among the 60% of Mainers who heat their homes with oil. Okay, I'm going to turn this fan on. Weatherization specialist BJ Estee did what's called a blower door test, depressurizing the house to see where it was letting cold air in and warm air out. Leaks around window frames and through hidden cracks in the drywall add up. He has about roughly a one by two foot square hole that's wide open in the home. The equivalent of having a window open year-round. Estee's report went to a contractor who will come to seal the leaks and make other repairs. 
The entire project is free because Moody is a senior living on Social Security, and he already gets help with his heating bills from the Aroostook County Action Program. Oil's already high prices are prone to spiking, like late last year due to the war in Ukraine. And Mainers are especially at risk from this volatility. Maine has the nation's oldest population and some of its oldest housing. It also has the highest poverty rate in New England. So, you know, it's really important to make sure that the houses are energy efficient so they're not burning as much oil, so they're not spending as much money on oil and fuel. Melissa Runshay leads energy programs for the county social service agency and also happens to be Moody's next-door neighbor. It's really expensive, and we have a long winter, and you can imagine that all of that money for all of that fuel is a huge energy burden on a lot of people. It's also a persistent climate change problem. Oil emits more carbon per unit of heat than any fossil fuel but coal, contributing to worsening storms, droughts, and rising seas. While the rest of Maine's economy has cut its greenhouse gas emissions, the residential sector's footprint is flat or growing. Maine's reliance on oil is partly because of the state's geography. Its population is spread across huge rural areas, with little access to natural gas pipelines. Other states that use a lot of oil, like Massachusetts, have been better able to switch their heat to relatively lower carbon gas. Hannah Pingree is co-chair of the Maine Climate Council, which is overseeing plans to sharply cut the state's emissions by 2050. One focus is on efficient electric heat pumps. This technology that really was a no-brainer for meeting decarbonization goals, improving the comfort of people's homes as well, and they could also save people money. So they were sort of the top strategy. Heat pumps work like air conditioners to provide heating and cooling at two or three times the efficiency of oil or regular electric heat in all but the coldest temperatures. Maine wants to get half a million heat pumps installed by 2030, a goal that's specifically tied to reducing emissions from oil. The state is on track with overall installations, but further behind on its goal for getting heat pumps into low-income homes. Heat pumps are not a one-size-fits-all solution. They can cost thousands of dollars, even with state and federal incentives. An installation can be tricky in older, less efficient homes like Bob Moody's. But Moody has started his journey off oil. The upgrades from his energy audit will save him more than $1,200 a year. That's around 300 gallons of oil he won't be burning. Here's Melissa Runshay again. The weatherization, you know, is like at the very top, you know, because if your heat isn't flying out of your house, it's going to save you money. Her team promised to sign Moody up for more funding to make other important retrofits. With enough of those, and as technology improves, he might be able to switch to heat pumps someday. Scientists say this kind of incremental progress is better than nothing in climate terms, as long as it keeps the state moving toward clear, data-driven goals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Annie Ropeek in Portland, Maine. That story is supported by MIT's Environmental Solutions Journalism Fellowship. It was reported in partnership with the nonprofit newsroom Maine Monitor. You're with WBUR. Coming up at 8.20, crews from around the world are arriving in Canada to help fight fires in remote areas that experts say may burn for months. After that, it's Friday, and that means it's StoryCorps. It's 7.50. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. 
Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Former President Donald Trump appeared for his arraignment in Miami this week, the first former president to face federal criminal charges. Special Counsel Jack Smith says, We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. A criminal trial is a very different thing from an impeachment. So how could Trump's trial alter the nation's political landscape? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira was indicted by a federal grand jury on charges of leaking classified documents. In northern Texas, at least three people were killed and dozens more hurt by a tornado yesterday. And a U.S. nuclear submarine arrived in South Korea one day after North Korea resumed missile tests. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bionova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics. Bionovascientific.com, where concept becomes cure. A mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will rise to the 80s. Tonight, they fall back to the 60s, and there's a good chance of scattered showers. Tomorrow, a rainy Saturday with showers and thunderstorms likely. It'll be in the upper 60s. Sunday, upper 60s and more rain. It's 69 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Amy Martinez. Rounding out our Father's Day series, we bring you a story that starts in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico in the 1990s. Jorge Mata and his wife were living and working as doctors there when something terrible happened. Part of the decision to come to the United States and move from Juarez was that we lost a couple of friends. They were doctors too. In Mexico, you can have your office as a doctor, and next to that, you can have a pharmacy. Somebody came and robbed the pharmacy, but they killed my my friends. After that, we say, you know what, like, it's not safe. The violence and the crime was the reason for us to move to the United States. When I moved with my two children, they were one year and a half, and my daughter was three years old. I didn't understand any English. Then I felt like, oh my God, what am I going to do with two children, my wife, no home, no car? It was scary at that moment to think how we are going to survive here. For me, moving to the United States, it wasn't a sacrifice. I knew that I was losing control of my life but it was the necessary move to have my family safe. My daughter, Suzelle, I remember taking her for the first time to a park here in the United States, and she went to try to play with children. And she noticed that they were speaking English, and she didn't understand. Then the face of my daughter, just like looking at them and not being able to understand, and coming back to us to sit down there and be quiet, 
And I say, what happens to sale? Say, I don't know what they are talking about. And I'm not going to be able to play with them. Then I have to explain, you know, it's, it's going to be like really fast for you to get the language. My first job was at the Outback State House. They say, what do you do? And I say, I don't do anything because it's a new job for me. I didn't mention I'm a doctor from Mexico, no. But I said, you know what, I like to cook and that's the only thing. Okay, they say, then you're going to start as a dishwasher. Then I start moving on the positions there to do salads and then to do fried things. And then in eight months, I was doing almost all the positions in the kitchen. When I'm cooking, my children, they know that I'm in the kitchen because first of all, they start listening mariachi music in the kitchen and they say, oh, okay, dad is cooking. We have a special meals for each one of them. My son likes to eat carne en su jugo. My daughter likes pozole. And my wife, we like to do carne asada and ceviche. What I most miss from Mexico was the friends at the level of college. And let me tell you, now I have two friends here that are my children and they have college degrees. We talk about everything. We go to museums, we talk about art, we talk about music, we talk about the medical field, philosophy. They are so interesting, so intelligent, that it's, it's amazing for me to see how they transform from the babies that we brought here to two really interesting human beings, adults that are doing well in their lives. Now Mata is practicing medicine again as a physician's assistant in California. Hong Kong's government wants everyone to stop listening to this song. It's an anonymously written protest anthem. The current Beijing-appointed leaders of the region say it's seditious and have ordered Internet companies to take it down. Now, will they comply? Here's NPR's Emily Fang. During 2019 demonstrations against Beijing's rule, someone wrote this protest anthem called Glory to Hong Kong. And it's become ubiquitous, even accidentally played as Hong Kong's official anthem at some sports matches. So earlier this month, Hong Kong's government filed an injunction seeking to prohibit anyone around the world from performing, sharing, or broadcasting this song. It was truly breathtakingly broad. Thomas Kellogg is a law professor who specializes in China at Georgetown University. They truly were seeming to wrap up almost the entire world, and it could target distribution platforms like YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, and a number of other American companies. Of course, enforcement could be difficult. Internet companies like Alphabet, which includes Google, could leave Hong Kong. That's what Google did in mainland China in 2010. It closed down its operations there, and Beijing now blocks all Meta and Alphabet services on the mainland. But it's a sign of how far the Hong Kong authorities are willing to go to kill just one song. That's Lockman Sui, a fellow at the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab, an open internet research institute. Already, most versions of Glory to Hong Kong have disappeared from Spotify. And Sui says... Then there's the other sort of unintended or maybe intended, but 
consequence of uh, the chilling effect of this injunction and sort of the self-censorship that it leads to. For decades, Hong Kong has enjoyed unfettered internet access, unlike mainland China next door. But if the courts approve the government's request, that could be ending. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman, Ami Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Today's episode of our podcast, The Common, focuses on Juneteenth. The holiday marking the emancipation of enslaved Black Americans is on Monday. Today, host Daryl C. Murphy talks with our arts editor, Lauren Williams, about some of the events happening around Boston to mark the holiday. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Partly sunny and temperatures in the 80s today. It falls to the low 60s tonight, and there's a good chance of showers. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open WorcesterArt.org. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. At least 79 migrants are dead and many more are missing after a smuggling boat capsized off the coast of Greece. It's Friday, June 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld key provisions of the federal act that protects Native children from being adopted by non-Native families. You know, I think that it's a win, not just for Native nations and Native families, but for our democracy and the rule of law. Also this hour. There was some disruption, but there's plenty of content. Most of our users got to enjoy that content. The CEO of Reddit responds to protests that resulted in thousands of its online communities going dark this week. Plus, a new project asked kids how they would redevelop Boston. I'll definitely build more gyms, more like roller skating, you know, just fun places like trampoline parks. Mostly sunny and in the 80s, it's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Texas officials say three people have been killed by a tornado that crashed through the Texas panhandle yesterday. Rescue officials in the town of Perryton, north of Amarillo, say about 75 people were injured. Damage is substantial. The tornado made a direct hit on one mobile home park. Hundreds of wildfires continue to burn across Canada, sending smoke and haze to parts of the U.S., NPR's Nathan Rott reports many are burning in remote areas. Thousands of people here in Quebec are still unable to return home because of these wildfires. Local fire officials say smoke, limited road access, and aggressive fire behavior is making it difficult to know when some communities will be able to open back up. Scattered rains earlier this week helped slow some of the fires, but forecasts show another wave of unusually hot temperatures coming for eastern Canada next week which could be a cause for concern. Staffing remains an issue, with Canadian firefighting resources spread thin across the country. More than 100 U.S. firefighters have been deployed here in Quebec alone to assist in the effort. Nathan Rott, NPR News, Val d'Or, Quebec. The National Weather Service has issued air quality alerts today for parts of Iowa. It's because of smoke from the Canadian wildfires. 
Forecasters say the haze and smoke should gradually dissipate by tonight. People who are sensitive to air quality are being asked to limit their outdoor activities. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass is excoriating Texas officials who sent a busload of migrants to the city this week. More than 40 people, including children, were left at an L.A. transit hub. Immigration activists have alleged the people on the bus did not have access to provisions or water on their trip. Texas Governor Greg Abbott rejected that accusation. I'll be uh, very clear. Uh, They had abundant uh, water and food supplies throughout the entire trip. Abbott says Texas is the front line for the border crisis. He is blaming that on the Biden administration. Microsoft founder Bill Gates met with Chinese President Xi Jinping today. Gates is in China this week. NPR's Emily Fang reports he says the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will donate $50 million to fight disease in China. Xi used the meeting to promote his vaguely defined Global Security Initiative, a conflict resolution framework she laid out last year. Calling Gates his, quote, old friend, Xi said China would, quote, never follow the old path of a strong country seeking hegemony. Gates is the latest in a string of business executives who have visited China this year after the country lifted COVID controls and eliminated quarantines. Tesla and Twitter CEO Elon Musk also met with Xi earlier this year. Musk is seeking to expand a huge Tesla factory in Shanghai. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret government documents has been indicted by a federal grand jury. WBUR's Ali Germanning reports that Jack Teixeira faces six counts of taking and transmitting classified information. The indictment lists some of the documents Teixeira is alleged to have taken, including details of troop movements in the war in Ukraine and discussions about a plot by a foreign adversary. Prosecutors say Teixeira accessed those records through his job as an IT specialist at Otis Air National Guard Base on Cape Cod and shared them with friends on Discord. Teixeira has been held at the Plymouth County Jail since April when he was arrested at his home in Dighton. He has not yet entered a plea. Each of the charges carries up to a decade in prison. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Governor Healy wants to use Massachusetts's more progressive reputation as a way to draw in new residents. She told WBUR's Radio Boston yesterday the state will always protect civil rights, voting rights, and LGBTQ rights. She said Massachusetts is not like some other states that are banning books and doing away with things like gender-affirming care. Massachusetts is a place where you can come, you can go to school here, you can raise a family here, you can grow a business here, you can live here and be here and be who you are and your rights will be protected. Healy admits Massachusetts isn't without its faults, but she says the state was working to drive down the cost of housing and to improve public transit. A priest who served in Granby is due in court today on charges he stole more than $100,000 from his parish. Prosecutors say Tomish Gorney stole the money over a three-year period. They accuse him of using it to buy a variety of personal items, including a lawnmower, wine, and video games. A new exhibit opens today on the history of slavery in Boston. WBUR's Samantha Kutzia reports it'll showcase artifacts found during an archaeological survey at Faneuil Hall. 
The exhibit is part of a larger effort to digitize all the artifacts found during those surveys. Over a dozen objects will physically be on display in Faneuil Hall, while over 60,000 will be online. Joe Bagley is the city archaeologist. He says the exhibit is meant to start a larger conversation about the city's ties to slavery. The goal, really, of this is to lay the foundations of what slavery in Boston was um, and try to tell as complete a story as possible to include the presence of Native enslaved people in addition to enslaved Africans. Bagley says the exhibit will be on display indefinitely. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, now through July 16th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. The Red Sox and Yankees will open a weekend series tonight at Fenway Park. And in your forecast, mostly sunny today, it'll be in the lower 80s. Cloudy with scattered showers overnight, temperatures will be in the 60s. Showers and thunderstorms tomorrow, mid-60s. Mostly cloudy with another chance for showers on Sunday in the 60s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Paramount Network, presenting 1883, a Yellowstone origin story, a summer-long event. 1883 full series network premiere starting Sunday at 8 on Paramount Network. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. Protests against the new fee structure at social media site Reddit have meant that large parts of its content went dark this week. It's a big deal for some of the 57 million people who use the discussion site daily, and it also reflects some larger shifts in social media. So CEO Steve Huffman talked with our own Steve Inski for his first broadcast interview since the protest began. Reddit users keep threads of conversation going on thousands of topics from politics to pop culture to porn. Many people use it through apps on their phones, and some of those so-called third-party apps say they will shut down now that Reddit wants to bill them millions of dollars to use its content. That's why operators of almost 9,000 communities on Reddit protested this week by having their conversations go dark. When CEO Steve Huffman came on the line, he insisted the protest only affected a small part of the business. So Reddit is about 100,000 communities, right? And these communities cover every kind of topic imaginable. There was some disruption, but mostly on our back end because the shape of Reddit changed. But in terms of the business, there's plenty of content. Most of our users got to enjoy that content. You know, that's really what Reddit is all about. I want to make sure of what you're saying here. If someone is protesting or boycotting your business, they want to cost you money, which would influence you. I think I hear you asserting that you have not really been cost a lot of money or a lot of trouble here. Is that right? It has not cost a lot of money. It's been a fair amount of trouble in the sense that this is what we're working on this week. But from a business point of view, not particularly disruptive. So did the protesters persuade you to change anything at all about your strategy? No, we've had protests like this before. So for some context, Reddit is a platform powered by people. The communities are made by people. It's a democratic platform. And so this is not the first protest that we've seen. However, in this case, we've been subsidizing other businesses for free for a long time. We're stopping that. That is not a negotiable point. 
we are simply in an unsustainable position. And so we need to get into a sustainable situation. And so that's the core of this change. I have so many things to follow up on, and this is one of them. Bobby Allen, our tech correspondent, spoke with the founder of Apollo, which is one of the third-party apps that has been using Reddit and has built its business on Reddit. Christian Selig is his name. And he has a question not just about what you're doing, but how you're doing it. Why, he asks, did Reddit decide on just a 30-day period for this transition, which gives them, in his view, virtually no opportunity to adjust their business model to the way you're adjusting yours? So we actually started talking about these changes, including with Christian and the other third-party apps back in April. They all knew this was coming. What they didn't know was the price. Now, the two largest apps, Apollo and another one called Reddit is Fun, mm -hmm. have just decided they don't want to participate going forward. So they're shutting down at the end of this month. The other third-party apps we are in conversations with and there are areas of opportunity to be more flexible, to give longer transition times, to go a little deeper. For folks who want to have productive conversations with us, we're here, we're having those conversations. The folks at Apollo, I guess, would not say that they don't feel like participating, but that they cannot pay the price that you are charging. Is there a case to be made that you've charged too much here, that you are going to drive people out of business? The cost is the cost. So it costs us tens of millions of dollars a year in pure infra, meaning infrastructure, right. all the work that goes into supporting that, and then the opportunity cost of not having those users on our advertising platform right. is really significant. So at the end of the day, it's simply expensive to run an app like Reddit, but it can be done, and if you want to do it, we're here to try to make it work. So you would deny that you're trying to drive the third-party apps out of business? I deny that, yes. But like I said, we're still talking to a handful of the other third-party apps, and we'll see if we can make it work. You probably know that some analysts are connecting a lot of different news items from the world of social media. This Reddit story, what's happening at Twitter, what has happened at Facebook, and are concluding that you are in this sector that has had a business model that just fundamentally doesn't make sense, maybe never made sense, the idea that people would use everything for free and then they would be monetized through advertising or some other way. And we're now finding out there just isn't enough money to sustain that. Is that the way that you see social media right now? Are you telling me that Facebook, one of the largest and most profitable companies of all time is not making it work? <laughs> I'm telling you, I think their profits have gone down, sure. And I see, I don't know what's going on at Twitter. So you tell me if there's a story there or not. So the business model absolutely works. So if you look at two of the largest companies on earth, Google and Facebook, mm -hmm. they make a lot of money. The business model works. Now, Twitter and Reddit, we're a lot smaller than those companies. But, you know, we have aspirations to be bigger. Our changes are a reflection of that. We had a tough week last week as well. We um, let some people go in a layoff. But long term it's actually a great business model and it can be really effective. And I think one of the things I like about it is it's actually also fairly transparent. As a user, you know what you're getting, right? You come to a platform like Reddit or any of the others we've mentioned and you see the ads. It's not complicated. Mm -hmm. It can be complex, but it's not complicated. Well, Steve Huffman, thanks very much. I've enjoyed talking with you. My pleasure, Steve. Be well. He's the CEO of the social media company, Reddit. Now a look at a frontline city in the conflict in Yemen.
The country's been ravaged by civil war for nearly a decade, since militants backed by Iran ousted the government from the capital. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates then sent troops and planes to back the government, turning Yemen into the site of a regional proxy war. And it's stolen the lives of thousands of civilians and created one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. NPR's Fatma Tanis is in the divided city of Ta'iz for a rare look inside the country. Fatma, give us a sense of what it's like there. What are you seeing? Well, the conditions are really tough here. The city is divided, as you mentioned, and the Iran-backed militia, known as the Houthis, are in the north and east, where most of the jobs and factories are. Uh, The rest, including where I am now, is controlled by the Saudi-backed coalition. Um, And many Yemenis here are struggling to find food. There are frequent and long power outages. The water isn't clean. There's a risk of cholera. Um, Salaries aren't getting paid. Uh, We've also heard some shots here, too, and residents say, while the worst of the fighting has died down, a sniping is still going on in some neighborhoods. I mean, nine years. How are people coping with this ongoing war? They've been living with fear the whole time. There are berms all around the city that are often the only thing protecting citizens from snipers coming from the Houthi side. There have also been, you know, Saudi airstrikes over the years in the area, uh, and they caused many civilian deaths. I was in one frontline neighborhood that sees frequent sniper attacks where I met an older woman who was afraid to give her name because she lives so close to the Houthi side. She showed me her foot where she was shot as she was walking to her home a few months ago. She has to walk that same path every day in fear, she says, and doesn't feel safe for a moment living here, but has no means to move elsewhere. So is there an end in sight for her? I mean, where does the fighting stand at this moment? Well, there's a stalemate right now, ever since peace talks between the Houthis and the Saudis started last year, but it's not really set in stone yet. So people are very skeptical. I spoke with a 26-year-old coalition soldier named Mohammed Fahad al-Shaybani, who lost his leg in a Houthi-planted mine. Here's what he said. Like many other Yemenis I spoke with, he feels that the negotiating parties are just looking out for themselves and not the people of Yemen, and doesn't believe that ending the war will end the suffering of people here. That's NPR's Fatma Tanis in Ta'iz, Yemen. Thank you so much, Fatma. Thank you, Leila. Performer Gloria Estefan has made history. She's become the first Latina inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Also just admitted, songwriter and producer Glenn Ballard, who co-wrote Alanis Morissette's 1995 album, Jagged Little Pill. The list also has ELO's Jeff Lynne, whose credits include Evil Woman and Mr. Blue Sky. And there's Liz Rose, who helped write some of Taylor Swift's best-known songs. When you wake up and find that what you're looking for has been here. 
NPR music critic Ann Power says the Hall of Fame recognizes songwriters who have a knack for transforming words on a page into an experience. Songwriting is not just about words, not just about lyrics, not just about melodies. It really is about creating a whole sound world. And that's especially important now as writers of all kinds face new competition from artificial intelligence. But where some see a threat, powers sees an opportunity. What AI offers is a chance for human creativity to expand in league with technology. Humans can work with technology and not be eradicated by it. A future of collaboration with AI. Congratulations to the newest members of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. I like the way you work it. No diggity. I thought to bag it up. Bag it up. I like the way you work it. No diggity. I thought to bag it up. Bag it up. I like the way you work it. No diggity. This is NPR News. Good morning, Arupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting ending your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Native Americans are celebrating a Supreme Court ruling yesterday that upholds key provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. And the Lyric Stage with Rooted, an offbeat comedy where two sisters and a treehouse accidentally start a cult. Through June 25th, LyricStage.com. Jason Isbell on the 400 Units' new album is all about accepting, maybe even embracing, the uncertainty and complications of life. I've always been the type of person who thought, if there's a problem, I need to solve it. And sometimes your job is just to listen. I'm Scott Detrow. Hear my conversation with Isbell on All Things Considered from NPR News. Can I sit with you Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. A heads up for weekend T-riders. Buses will replace Green Line trains between Union Square and Medford Tufts tomorrow and Sunday because of construction. There's also no Green Line service between North Station and Government Center until June 25th. That's because the Haymarket Station is closed. Orange Line trains will go through that station but won't stop there. Partly sunny and a high near 82 today. There's a chance of scattered showers this evening and overnight. Temperatures will fall to a low around 62. Tomorrow, cloudy and a high of 68 with showers and thunderstorms likely. The rain could be heavy at times. More showers on Sunday with a high of 68 again. It's 71 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBWAR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from STARS with a new season of Outlander. In order to protect what they've built, Jamie and Claire have to navigate the perils of the Revolutionary War. Watch Outlander now on STARS and the STARS app. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Amy Martinez. Another round of smoke from Canadian wildfires is drifting south, blanketing parts of the Midwest and headed for the East Coast. Millions of Americans will wake up this morning to hazy and, in some places, hazardous skies. Around 450 wildfires are currently burning across Canada which is experiencing a particularly early and intense fire season. NPR's Nathan Rott is in Quebec. Nate, uh, how close are you to some of those wildfires? Well, A, I am learning that close is a relative term in the province of Quebec. Uh, I'm at a city called Val d'Or, which is in the western part of the province, about a six-hour drive north of Montreal. And there is a cluster of major wildfires burning a ways north from here, like a couple more hours. Uh, But only firefighting personnel are being allowed into those areas right now currently. And despite some rain over the last couple of days, it's kind of unclear when that's going to change and when those roads will open up. And considering the amount of smoke that's drifting across the border, I mean, the wildfires have got to be intense and got to be massive. Yeah, they are huge. I mean, here in Quebec, the amount of land that's burnt is already 10 times uh, what they would normally see an entire year. And, you know, as you said, we're still really early in the season, only in mid-June. I was talking to a fire information officer, uh, Melanie Moraine, here yesterday at one of their bases. And she said that the scale of this is really complicating things nationally is because there are so many fires burning in so many provinces at the exact same time. And that's what's not common. And it has limited us being able to help each other within provinces. And that is one of the reasons why many of the agencies have had to go internationally for help. So typically, a Canadian firefighter has moved around from region to region in the summer to help out when a place pops off. Pretty similar to how we do it in the U.S. Uh, But right now, with so much fire, they're spread really thin. And Melanie mentioned international help. Where are the firefighters coming from? All over the place. I mean, New Zealand, South Africa, France, uh, a bunch of teams came in earlier this week from Portugal, Spain, and the U.S. Uh, I actually went to meet two U.S.-based hotshot crews at the airport here in Valdor yesterday, hotshots being the creme de la creme of U.S. ground crews. And for one of the 20-person teams from Helena, Montana, this was already their second Canadian deployment this year. I asked their acting superintendent, Tyg Stoyanov, what the biggest difference was fighting fires here versus the U.S., you know, besides the obvious language barrier, which he said they've been using apps to address. And he said access in these dense, remote boreal forests has been a real issue. It's challenging to move around in and challenging to see where the fire is. It's challenging to see a quarter mile sometimes. So they use aviation assets uh, pretty heavily, scoopers and helicopters. Helicopters are almost like pickup trucks up here. And scoopers are fixed-wing aircraft airplanes that literally scoop water from lakes or big bodies of water and then dump them on the fires. Given, though, the remoteness of these fires, is it safe to say that they're going to be burning for a while? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're still early in the summer. I've heard some people say that they expect these fires to burn until it starts snowing, which to be clear, as you know, being in California, that's not necessarily bad. Fire is a part of a lot of these landscapes. The concern, though, is that this has happened uh, so intensely so early in the season and that uh, it's going to continue here for a while. All right. That's NPR's Nathan Rott in Quebec. Uh, Wear a mask, Nate. Yeah, I appreciate it. eh? Time now for StoryCorps. Augustor and LeBron's Davis grew up on their family's farm in Wetumpka, Alabama. The brothers came to StoryCorps to talk about their 1950s childhood and their dad, Ben. There were nine of us at home at one time. All the boys was in one room. We had two beds. Two slept at the head and two slept at the feet. And there was one thing about them feet. You washed them feet before you went to bed. We only had one cash crop, which was cotton. 
And we were just breaking even. You had a hole in your jeans or your mama put a patch over it. And you kept right on going. Kept right on going. Kids today, they take jeans out, hang them on the line, and shoot them to put (laughs) holes in them. My first lesson in economics, Daddy taught it to me. We had worked and made a little extra money, and we wanted to go to the fair. I had made $6. $6, man, I was on top of the world. I played games. I ate cotton candy. I came back home, and Daddy asked me, Boy, how much money did you spend at the fair? And I just held my head down. So, Daddy, I spent it all. He said, Boy, you spent all your money, and haircuts gone up to 75 cents. <laughs> so I'll always keep me enough money to get me a haircut. Daddy was um, warm. If he got it, he'd give it to you. If he didn't have it, he'd tell you how to get it. You remember when Daddy started the syrup mill? Yes. Yes. And people in the community would bring their cane and mill it for us to grind up and make syrup. And people would pay with buckets of syrup. I said, Daddy, why don't you let these people pay you? Because we got enough syrup to last us for a long time. And he looked at me and he said, son, these people don't have no money to pay. That's the only way they can pay. Daddy taught us all how to do the right thing and wanted us to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. He kept me out of school one day because he was delivering lumber. The directions that were given to him were not very clear. And since Daddy, you know, he only went to the third grade, uh, he couldn't read the address. And I said, I'll help you, Daddy. I couldn't have been no more than eight or ten years old. It was just heartbreaking You know, there are things that I try to pass on to my son. There's only two things in life a person actually owns, and that is his name and his word. And in his own way, that's what Daddy left me with. Augusta and LeBron's Davis remembering their dad, Ben Davis. Their interview will be archived in the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com care. And from Dignity Memorial, Helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. A new project by a city of Boston artist in residence reimagines the development process from a kid's point of view. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative. This is Nutter online at nutter.com. And the Harvard Art Museums, open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays and museums at night events, harvardartmuseums.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Texas, officials continue to search for survivors after a tornado hit Perrytown, northeast of Amarillo, yesterday, leaving at least three people dead. Fire Chief Paul Dutcher. Searching these areas, searching the debris fields, making sure we've got uh, people gathered up. Officials say hundreds of homes were damaged or destroyed. The Ukrainian military says Kyiv has come under missile attack as a delegation of African leaders visits the country to promote dialogue to end the war with Russia. The Air Force says it shot down more than a dozen projectiles. The African delegation is led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. The BBC's McGaney Jones has more from Kyiv. Reuters say they saw a draft of some of the proposals that these African leaders want to make. These include potentially lifting sanctions on Russia, getting Russian troops to pull back and perhaps more controversially getting the arrest warrant against President Putin at the International Criminal Court removed. Now, many may feel that these demands are tall order, but uh, this delegation says it's here because it's important that it has a part to play in brokering a peace between both countries because the shortage of grains and fertilizer that's resulted from the conflict directly affects African economies. The BBC's Mayani Jones. In world financial markets, Asia markets were higher by the close. The Nikkei up six-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The lawyers who sued over Boston's first attempt at a new political map say they're unlikely to sue again. A judge ruled last month that Boston had to toss out that new map on the grounds that city councilors improperly used race to create it. That left them scrambling to get a new map completed ahead of this fall's elections. It was done in time, although the deadline for candidates to file was pushed back by a few weeks. Despite efforts by school systems across the state, there are still racist, homophobic, and anti-Semitic incidents happening in high school sports. The Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association began requiring schools to report those incidents two years ago. The group tells the Boston Globe it received 50 reports of discrimination, harassment, and bullying in the last school year. And it says the actual number of incidents may be higher. A new seasonal outdoor music venue in East Boston makes its debut today. WBUR's Andrea Shea reports it's at a horse track that closed in 2019. Performers, not ponies, are the main attraction at the new Suffolk Downs venue called The Stage. Josh Boddy is senior vice president of The Bowery Presents, which also owns and books indoor concert venues, including the Sinclair, the Royale, and Roadrunner. Being able to have a big open-air greenfield site is really something that doesn't exist in this city as a regular concert venue. And, you know, it's not just a festival site. The Stage's field accommodates 8,500 people and begins welcoming them today for a weekend-long concert series called Reset. The headliners are Steve Lacey, LCD Sound System, and Boy Genius. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Red Sox and Yankees face off tonight at Fenway. Boston took two out of three games last weekend when the teams met in New York.
A mix of sun and clouds today with a high in the low 80s. This evening, there's a chance of scattered showers. It'll be in the low 60s. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms likely and much cooler with highs only in the upper 60s. More showers likely on Sunday and it'll be in the upper 60s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. Good morning. The U.S. Supreme Court delivered an unexpected win for Native American nations yesterday. By a 7-2 to two vote, the court rejected challenges to the Indian Child Welfare Act. The 1978 law is intended to help keep Native American adoptees with their nation. The lead plaintiffs, a white couple seeking to adopt a second Navajo child, argued the law promoted racial discrimination. Joining us now is Dehasi Hill, chairman for the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. It's among the five nations involved in the case. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. So when you heard the decision, what was your initial reaction? Uh, I was quite excited, uh, a little bit emotional, to uh, tell you the truth. Very, very uh, strong case to to have this type of decision on. You said you got emotional. If you could just explain what this Supreme Court decision means for your nation and other Native nations. Uh, yeah, you know, first of all, it's really about the protection of our families and our children, uh, especially those in the most need when they're facing uh, um, having their families uh, separated. And so uh, having these uh guidelines in place are really helpful for tribal nations to maintain our culture and our identity through our children. Yeah. As I mentioned, the lead plaintiffs claimed the law promoted racial discrimination and the five nations involved in the case argued they're political entities, not racial groups. If you could break down the important distinction here. Uh, Yes, definitely. So uh, uh, tribal nations across this country have um, treaties with the federal government, and that has been kind of the longstanding uh, standard of identifying that these are political interactions and not racial interactions. And so uh, with that, I guess, uh, longstanding history on our side, that tribes are political in nature and not racial in nature has really been kind of the the main point of of the case. If we could talk about the origins of this law, it was enacted nearly 50 years ago, really to protect Native kids at a time when massive numbers of children were being removed from their homes, often forcibly, and placed outside of their communities. What kind of harm did that do to children, their families, and to Native nations? Yeah, definitely. You know, for the children, is really a loss of identity and cultural connection. And, uh, we, we find that, you know, that it's that's very important uh, for the development of the child and also the continuation of, of our, our nations uh, across the country is that cultural connection uh, with our children to pass along our stories and our heritage, heritage and, our, and, our, and our language. And so, you know, the previous uh, federal policy was to, you know, do away with Indians 
And so this uh, reversal with this ICWA really helped tribes in, in the long run be able to maintain that cultural connection and that continuity of government. Explain that importance of keeping Native children when, for some reason, they can't be with their families, they need to be adopted or put in foster care to keep them within their nations. Yeah, it's really about, you know, relaying the importance and that cultural and that identity uh, for each of the tribal nations across this country. And it's really, you know, that that basis for uh, our nations. And so that that cultural, I guess, competency and or uh, language and, and, and culture is very important to our our tribal nations and trying to make sure that uh, we maintain that is kind of paramount as that's really, you know, one of the distinguishers between our tribal nations. Dehasi Hill is chairman for the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Very, very happy to be here. At least 79 people are dead after a boat carrying hundreds of migrants capsized early Wednesday off the coast of Greece. Just over 100 survivors were initially found, and while search operations continue, there's little hope that more survivors will be rescued. And thousands are protesting in Greece over the handling of this capsized boat and over European immigration policies. We're joined now from Athens by Associated Press journalist Derek Otopoulos. He just returned from the Greek port city of Kalamata, where many of the survivors were taken. Derek, do they know or does anyone know what caused the boat to sink? Um, they don't know. It's the subject of an investigation. What they believe happened is because the vessel was being tracked before it sank is that the large number of people in the vessel on the deck and below deck possibly moved to one side and caused the vessel to capsize i think maybe a seven as many as 700 people were on board which would imply that 500 or so could be dead wow um what are the people that survived what are they saying well, what we only have at the moment is secondary information from people, from aid workers and politicians and others who have been um, speaking to the migrants because they have not been allowed to speak directly to reporters or people there. But what they've been saying is that, um, first of all, they're confirming that women and children were below deck, mostly, including other men. And most of the men were above deck, well, many of the men were above deck, and they're among the survivors and the bodies recovered. So the assumption is and the belief is that um, these people have gone to the bottom with the ship. Well, and Leila mentioned earlier thousands of people protesting in Greece over how this was handled. What is their main uh, concern? Well, there are several reasons why people are protesting. Um, sometimes it, the, Greece has a general election coming up on June 25, so that's part of the the reason for the protest. But the other reason is that People fear, and not just um, people, but also aid organizations and, and, and sometimes political parties fear that the crackdown on migration is causing smugglers to take more dangerous, to take more risks, essentially, so that they take long journeys on unseaworthy boats, as is in this case. It was traveling from Libya to Italy, which is a long journey, three days, and two-thirds of the way through its journey as it passed through Greece, it capsized mainly because it was an unseaworthy boat. And in this kind of tragedy, I mean, you mentioned it, we're, I mean, we're going to politics. Um, how have the changing politics of migration in Europe affected the types of journeys these people try to make? Well, it does have a direct effect because um, 
The European Union hasn't been able to finalize a deal on how to share the burden, if you like, of migrants coming in, because they all come across the Mediterranean to southern European countries, and then they try to get to central European countries. So the crackdown, uh, the, the inability to figure out how to deal with this has just led to additional policing and building walls and patrols. So that has made the journeys to across the Mediterranean more dangerous. And quickly, that additional policing, that cracking down, is that reducing the numbers of migrants? It is, but it's making the journeys more dangerous. Those are the two main things. Okay. That's uh, the Associated Press's Derek Gotopoulos in Athens. Derek, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the economic implications of the Supreme Court's decision to uphold key provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Low 80s and partly sunny today, low 60s tonight, and there's a good chance of scattered showers. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms are likely in the upper 60s. Upper 60s on Sunday, too, with more showers likely. It's 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at mos.org. Cambridge-based Flagship Pioneering is planning a major expansion in Andover. Flagship is a top shareholder in Moderna. The firm told the town it plans to spend at least $325 million to redevelop the campus once home to Phillips Healthcare. The Boston Business Journal reports Flagship wants to create a new biomanufacturing space for up to seven of its companies. Providence-based United Natural Foods is laying off 150 people. The move is part of a restructuring effort. Company leaders say that includes consolidating its operations from four regions down to three. Today is the last day you can grab a bite to eat at Sunnyside Cafe in Wilmington. It's closing its doors after 23 years in business. Sunnyside's owners say they have to leave in order to make way for the construction of a new apartment building. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum, online.merrimack.edu. And schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and the Good Place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at sailgracebailey.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. What would the city of Boston's development process look like if residents had a greater say? That question is at the heart of a project by city artist-in-residence Lily Shea. She made two short films and a phone hotline in partnership with a member of the Boston Planning and Development Agency. The project explores scrapping the BPDA entirely and aims to help the agency understand how it could better center the interests of residents. She joins me now. Thanks for being here, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. 
So your project takes a few forms. One of the films you worked on with the Roxbury Youth Program really gets at what young people are feeling amid the current housing crisis. Can you tell us more about kind of what the kids had to say? When we first started working together, we were I was going to their program and doing workshops on gentrification. That eventually led us to this question of, like, who decides what gets built in Boston? Who decides what happens to a neighborhood like Roxbury? And started asking them, you know, if you could build anything in Boston, what would you build? I would definitely build more gyms, more like roller skating, you know, just fun places like trampoline parks. So some of the things that they were talking about were, you know, things that are fun, like places for roller skating, but also getting very real with what it's like to be a young person right now and to be someone who doesn't really have a voice in what happens, you know, what gets built in the city. There's these two brothers, um, Severio and Roydell, that talk about being in 12th grade and not knowing what's going to be ahead of them when they graduate. It's a little, it's a little nerve-wracking of, you know, it's a lot of pressure. Like, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to afford to live? All the kids that we kind of grew up with in our neighborhood, they're all, they all moved out. All gone. They're all gone. I don't see them anymore. <laughs> and I'm just like, and I'm scared. They definitely also wanted um, rent control was one topic that got brought up. Another of your films focuses on Chinatown, and you talk to people there about what they think their neighborhood needs. And what did they say? Yeah, so for the film in Chinatown, that was made with a group of residents and organizers. So with that group, I started with the question of, like, what would a life-affirming institution of planning and development look like? I think I want to ask Chinatown, like, what are your what are your dreams or what do you want to do? One thing that coming up was, like, you know, what if an institution of planning and development approached us not as stakeholders but as collaborators? You know, what if we were... We were the ones that were maybe posing the questions of, like, what should get built or what our community needs, as opposed to the other direction, you know, developers coming to us and say, this is what we're going to build. I want to get to the phone hotline. Why, why is a phone hotline, you know, part of this project? Yeah, the phone hotline sort of emerged really organically. You know, there was a question that I was asking the different groups that I was working with. Imagine you're the mayor of Boston in the year 2100, and what are the news headlines that you're seeing Thank you for calling in to the year 2100. It's been 77 years since Boston residents created their own institution of planning and development to guide the growth of the city. I just thought that the answers were so compelling that people were saying, so I ended up recording them and putting them all together. Breaking news, the BPDA equips 100 families to stay 100 years in each neighborhood. Some people were really positive. Um, They're like, you know, imagining, you know, we have so much affordable housing because there's pod housing that extends like infinitely into the sky. And then some people are really dystopian and they were like, you know, actually in 2100, things have gone really bad and we are really into cars. We put all the cars on the surfaces. So all the people have been pushed underground and all the cars are on the surface and folks are living underground. People calling into the hotline, people watching the films, people at the BBDA. I mean, what do you want them to take away from this? I'm hoping that what these films and what this hotline will spark for people is just a feeling of possibility. And the possibility of what we could build in the place of what we have today is really expansive. We, you know, there was a time where community feedback wasn't requested um, in the city. That was not that long ago. And so for now, there's been this change now towards having public meetings, having community feedback. That's a huge change. You know, knowing that, that that's where we came from, I think for me, gives me a lot of hope for where we could be going. Boston artist and residence Lily Shea. Thanks so much for being here and sharing what you heard. Thank you so much. It was so nice to be here. 
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a closer look at the growing number of casualties Russia is facing from its invasion of Ukraine, plus a look at a global sailing race that's in its final leg from the Netherlands to Italy. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Emmy Blotnick got a real vote of confidence. My pants just texted me I'm doing a great job. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. We think your entire wardrobe will approve of this week's show with actor James Marsden, star of the cult hit TV show Jury Duty, joining us as our guest, or maybe pretending to. Join us for an uncertain news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. At least three people are dead and dozens more injured after a tornado hit the northern Texas panhandle city of Perryton. A group of Russian hackers is being blamed for a cyber attack on the U.S. Department of Energy, although American officials say it was caught quickly. One of the strongest cyclones to hit India and Pakistan in years has knocked out power to hundreds of thousands of people. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Partly sunny and in the 80s today with scattered showers possible tonight. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Is it trash day for junk fees? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio. What critics call junk Fees. Some see them in the $45 per night destination charges on hotel bills sometimes or the $25 fee for not booking a plane ticket on the Internet. The Biden administration is pressuring companies to stop with surprise or undisclosed or too clever by half charges. And they want to be sure people know in advance the cost of a product or service. Two major ticketing companies say they will end hidden fees, so at least buyers using Ticketmaster and SeatGeek will have more transparency about the full price of a ticket up front. Marketplace's Henry Epp has that. Maybe you've experienced this. You think you're buying a concert ticket at one price, but when you get to the checkout, there's a whole bunch of fees added on. University of Miami professor of music industry Serona Elton has been there. I even remember calling out to the other room, honey, I got tickets for 100 Well, no, sorry, no, I was wrong. It's 180 not 100 The first price you see is what the artist is charging, Elton says, but the venue and the ticketing company want their cut, too. Another way to think of them is that they actually are different slices of the total ticket cost pie. Customers just didn't know they had to pay for all those slices until they were near the end of the transaction. But now that will be more clear from the start. These moves are voluntary, but regulators have been scrutinizing the ticketing industry, says Steve Tadellis, an economics professor at UC Berkeley. 
these businesses understand that uh, the writing's on the wall. We might as well do it now voluntarily instead of uh, having it forced upon us. Being more transparent could save some face for Ticketmaster. Their parent company is reportedly facing an antitrust investigation. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. Do not put confidential company information into artificial intelligence chatbots and do not copy and paste what those AI systems say back. These are warnings to employees from Google's parent company, Alphabet, home of the Bard chatbot. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Chatbots consume huge amounts of data and written text in order to have natural-sounding conversations, answer questions, and create content. But the inherent risk is that sometimes these so-called generative artificial intelligence systems not only use previously written language to learn how to talk, but actually memorize verbatim portions of text. This is where privacy and security concerns come into play. Many companies are warning their employees to avoid typing in confidential information into AI chatbots because they could spit them out later in other conversations. That's the warning Google parent Alphabet has sent to its employees, according to Reuters, and it applies to the company's own AI chatbot, Bard. In addition, Alphabet reportedly warned its engineers to avoid directly using computer code generated by chatbots because they may not be the best code. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. It's also word that Mercedes and Microsoft are going to test ChatGPT in cars to boost voice assistant capabilities, which means for Gen Xers, maybe Kit from Knight Rider might be right around the corner. For boomers, maybe it's my mother, the car. (laughs) If my memory is correct, in the Stephen King movie, Christine, the murderous Plymouth Fury had no voice, but a kind of evil AI sentience. Let us do the numbers. After the S&P closed up 1.2% yesterday, futures are up another three-tenths of a percent now. NASDAQ futures are up four-tenths percent. Dow futures are up by less than a tenth percent. The 10-year interest rate is up 3.75%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL. JLL strives to combine technology with global data and local commercial real estate experience to identify opportunities that benefit clients and the community. More at JLL.com. See a brighter way. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. And by Unisys, whose app modernization cloud solutions helps businesses create new cloud-native apps to unlock powerful insights and optimized performance. Unisys, keep breaking through. Now to some economic and social implications of the 7-2 U.S. Supreme Court decision to let stand the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. That 40-year-old federal law gives tribal nations a voice in custody proceedings involving Native children. It aims to keep them connected to their families and communities. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has our report. On Thursday morning, Indian country breathed a sigh of relief. It's a good day in Indian country, and it's a good day for the rule of law. And Dan Leverance, a professor at the University of North Dakota School of Law, says a lot of business interests were probably disappointed. For one, plenty of adoption agencies would have liked to see ICWA disappear. In that industry... Children are commodities. And ICWA prevents agencies from making money from the adoption of Native children. Part of what Leverin says made the law necessary to begin with. And Stacy Leeds, a law professor at Arizona State, says a host of less obvious industries stood to gain from an ICWA strike down. Oil and gas, natural resources, gaming. 
Behind the challenge to ICWA, she says, is a challenge to tribes' political sovereignty, which allows them to manage their own territories and natural resources and generate revenue by operating businesses like casinos. The whole of the field of federal Indian law is premised on this special relationship between the United States and the tribes. One of the plaintiff's arguments in this case was that ICWA provides an unfair benefit based on race. But Dan Leverin says the court didn't really deal with that question, which leaves the door open for new challenges. I have no doubt that the plaintiff's lawyers are actively looking for their next case. To overturn ICWA and Indian law more broadly. But this has become a more difficult business proposition for the plaintiffs. He says a multinational law firm that represents lots of commercial gaming and oil and gas clients argued this case pro bono, meaning it sunk millions into the case that it won't get back. After this loss in the Supreme Court, he says the question is who will be willing to bankroll future ICWA challenges? I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. News, including financial news, they don't want you to know tends to get buried on Friday afternoons. My colleague Kai Rizdahl and team will unbury it later today on many public radio stations or streaming from Marketplace.org. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera, engineers Brian Allison, Jessen Dooler, and Nick Esposito. This is the Marketplace Morning Report from APM. American Public Media. Partly sunny and temperatures in the 80s today. It falls to the low 60s tonight and there's a good chance of showers. Tomorrow, a rainy Saturday that'll be much cooler. It'll be in the 60s with showers and thunderstorms likely. Expect about the same on Sunday. It's 73 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Nuance is committed to helping physicians restore their work-life balance with DAX an AI-powered solution that automates clinical documentation. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. Former President Donald Trump appeared for his arraignment in Miami this week, the first former president to face federal criminal charges. Special Counsel Jack Smith says, We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. A criminal trial is a very different thing from an impeachment. So how could Trump's trial alter the nation's political landscape? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.